The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show today is about why we must sacrifice privacy for security. You know, they always say, oh, we have to think of security and we have to give up our privacy for security, but we're going to talk about why you don't need to do that. And we are welcoming back a guest that we've had twice before on the show. He's wonderful. One of our very favorite privacy experts, Dan Solov, who wrote this wonderful new book called Nothing to Hide, The False Trade-Off Between Privacy and Security. Let me tell you a little bit about him. If you have heard our show before, but you haven't heard Dan, you are in for a treat. Dan is the John Marshall Harlan Research Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School. He's also a Senior Policy Advisor at Hogan Lovells, and additionally, he is the founder of Teach Privacy. This is a new company that helps schools develop a comprehensive privacy program, and I'm so excited what he's doing. We're going to have another show all about that. One of the world's leading experts in privacy law, that's how he is defined, is Dan Solov. And he's the author of numerous books. Besides this new one, Nothing to Hide, The False Trade-Off Between Privacy and Security, he's also written Understanding Privacy Law, Understanding Privacy, and The Future of Reputation on the Internet. This is Gossip and Rumor in the Information Age, and we already read that book, too, And we talked about it last year, wonderful book, and also The Digital Person, Technology and Privacy in the Information Age, and we had him on the show in 2005 to talk about that book. Dan Solov is also an author of Privacy Law Fundamentals, and this was published by the International Association of Privacy Professionals just in 2011, and I'm a member of that organization. It's a short guide to information privacy law. Additionally, he is the author of a textbook called Information Privacy Law, and he is co-author with another book, but with Paul Schwartz. He is the author of several other textbooks, including Privacy in Media, Privacy Information and Technology, and he's published more than 40 articles and essays, which have appeared in leading law reviews. I know he's also a privacy expert on law cases. In fact, we were both privacy experts on the same case a couple years ago. Dan has testified before Congress, and he's been involved as an expert on high-profile privacy cases. 
and he's been interviewed and featured on several hundred media broadcasts and articles, so we're so thrilled that he's with us. But I just want to tell you also, you look at his blog, which he writes at concurringopinions.com. And, of course, you can find out more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. We link to his website so you can see his picture, and you can also see JPEGs of his books. And you can also go to Daniel Solov. That's D-A-N-I-E-L Solov dot com. Thank you so much for joining us again, Dan. It's always a pleasure to have you. Well, thanks so much for having me. Okay, so what about this new book, Nothing to Hide? How come you decided that this was necessary to write, and how did this come about? Well, I um, have been hearing uh, the debate over privacy and security and, and having the debate with people and, and seeing it on the media uh, uh, quite a lot. And what I've discovered is that I, I think the debate is going on in the wrong way. And I keep hearing what I consider to be really faulty arguments um, being made in the debate um, that I really want to set the record straight because um, they're based on false assumptions, false premises, misunderstandings of the law, and I think that they um, obfuscate uh, the issues and ultimately skew the debate toward the security side uh, unfairly and improperly. Um, and an example of one of these is, is the following, that we often hear um, people say, um, well, we must sacrifice privacy um, for security. And when a particular uh, security measure is proposed, such as NSA surveillance or, or uh, some other thing when it's uh, being discussed, um, the defenders of that will, will say something like, well, don't you really want us to be listening for terrorists? Um, don't you really want us to be engaging in this surveillance if it's going to protect us against terrorism? And you also have um, pollsters will ask, well, you know, do you want people listening, do you want the government listening in on phone calls if it will help catch the terrorists? And you get, you know, people overwhelmingly saying, well, yeah, we want uh, people to help uh, investigate and, and do surveillance to stop the terrorists. Um, but the problem is that um, this is the wrong set of questions. This is the wrong debate. Because protecting privacy rarely ever means sacrificing the security interest, uh, it, uh, the, the, the security measure. Um, it's not the, the right thing to say, you know, do we want the government to engage in surveillance? The government will engage in surveillance. And privacy doesn't mean that the government can't engage in surveillance. Right. What it means is that the surveillance is put under adequate oversight, that the government has to justify when and why it wants to engage in that surveillance, um, that there are adequate controls to prevent against abuses. That's what privacy means. So it doesn't mean no to a security measure. It means that you have a security measure with protection. And so the real questions that the pollster should ask are, you know, do you want the NSA to engage in surveillance of phone calls subject to a warrant probable cause or some other kind of judicial oversight or, or, or set of controls and accountability? Or do you want them to be able to do it without any kind of oversight, any kind of control at their mere whim? Right. That's the great question, because I think ultimately that's really what's at stake. And it's certainly the case that you know, subjecting uh, government surveillance to greater oversight and making them justify it 
is time-consuming uh, and and it can be tedious for them. It's not convenient for them, um, and it can diminish the effectiveness of the surveillance to some degree. But the full surveillance measure shouldn't be weighted on the scale against privacy. What should be weighed on the scale against privacy is the difference in effectiveness between the measure that's just totally at the law enforcement officials' discretion and the measure with some kind of judicial oversight and control. And that difference is often not that great. And that's a difference that people are saying, yeah, we're willing to give up a little bit of the NSA's you know, absolute power to engage in surveillance if we get privacy protection. Um, so I think that if you have the debate properly and if you balance privacy and security the right way, you get much, much better and more accurate results rather than the skewed way that that's going on. And that's kind of what really what, and it's a long-winded answer for what inspired me to write this book, <laughs> is that I find it very, very frustrating that the debate, the balancing, the arguments are, are, are just wrong and they're actually unduly um, skewing the debate and leading to um, no privacy protection where there should be privacy protection. Right, right. And and I love the name of the book, Nothing to Hide, because people will tell me that. You know, when I talk about the kinds of things that you're talking about, they go, well, you know, Mari, if you have nothing to hide, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? So why don't you tell them, what is the big deal? Well, I, I tackle the Nothing to Hide argument in one of the chapters of the book, and, and that's another one of these arguments that I think is, is uh, really in need of uh, rethinking, and a lot of people say it, well, you know, look, if you have nothing to hide, um, you know, you really shouldn't be concerned about government surveillance, because only if you have something to hide should you really be worried. Um, most of what you do is innocuous, and, and you know, who cares if the government knows um, you know, your interests and your likes and your location and your habits and other things. Um, and, and my response to the argument is that I think it's, it narrowly conceives of what privacy is. It basically views privacy as hiding um, discreditable secrets uh, that, you know, that uh, but, but, but the privacy is a lot more than just hiding secrets. Uh, even if the information isn't embarrassing, even if it isn't bad, even if it doesn't show that you're engaged in any kind of immoral or illegal actions, um, I think there are still some very uh, compelling reasons why people would want privacy. Um, some include the fact that you have a lot of bureaucratic harms when it comes to the data. The data could be leaked. The data could be misused. Um, in an identity theft situation, um, it's not the case where identity theft victims say, well, you know, I have nothing to hide, so, you know, hurrah for the identity theft. <laughs> right. It's look that information can be used uh, in very harmful ways against you, even if it's not discreditable information. And we also have instances where um, there are other components of privacy implicated as well. The fact is that even if I'm doing everything um, totally legal, totally okay, and I'm not embarrassed by anything I'm doing, it doesn't mean that I want to have to justify what I'm doing to the government. It doesn't mean that I want to have to worry about how the government or some government official is going to judge what I'm doing or misjudge what I'm doing based on some information fragments that they're gathering. So someone kind of listens in on part of a phone call and hears me say something 
Um, I don't want to have to worry, like, well, how are they going to listen to it? What are they thinking about it? Um, hmm, did my words sound suspicious to them? Um, I think in a free society, you know, I, you know, people shouldn't have to answer to the government or kind of worry about, you know, how, you know, some busy and uh, uh, overworked government of bureaucrat is going to judge them based on, you know, hearing fragments of a conversation or how some computer is going to react based on words that they use or, or various other, other fragments taken out of context. Uh, and, and so even if there is a, a lot of times there's a completely you know, innocuous explanation for these, but people shouldn't have to make that explanation. It shouldn't, the onus shouldn't be on people having to worry about that or having to explain themselves and everything that they do. And, you know, when we're talking about privacy, and I, and I know you being a privacy professor, we're sitting here on the campus of the University of California, Irvine, and we finally do have a law school. But there's a lot of people who are listening who don't really understand what we mean by privacy. And you started to talk about that, how we shouldn't say it's something you hide. Let's kind of talk about that with regard to what you're talking about, because if, if someone says, I have nothing to hide, but we have hidden databases that we don't even have access to, like like I think about the TSA watch list, for example, or many other, or the, what is it, the, the no-buy list by the Treasury Department, you know, we really don't even know. It's not transparent what they're collecting, why they're collecting, and how to get off of it. So when you're talking about privacy, let's talk a little bit and educate my audience about the privacy principles so they get it that it's not hiding. Exactly. Well, well privacy, uh, as I define it, I, I wrote a book several years ago called Understanding Privacy, and in that book I, I tried to define what privacy was. And ultimately I, I concluded that, that privacy is many different but related things, but it's not just one thing. It's many things. And so privacy uh, involves, and I actually created a taxonomy that sets forth um, at least four general categories of what privacy is about, and then uh, ultimately 16 subcategories of things that we think are, are, are privacy. And so examples would be, you know, it's freedom from intrusion into our space, freedom from uh, freedom to make uh, decisions about our, our lives, freedom to... Uh, from having uh, information about us uh, disseminated to the public, um, freedom from being blackmailed uh, and threatened uh, by the use of our information. Uh, it involves um, uh, protection against uh, certain kinds of secondary uses of information uh, or uh, the protection of confidentiality. When I share information with, with, with a, uh, a doctor or a lawyer, it's protection of that uh, confidential relationship. Uh, it, it also means uh, the way that information is processed, rights to access and correct information and records, uh, the data security, the right that those uh, people maintaining your information keep it uh, adequately secure. And, and another right is that my identity not be used um, in ways that are for the commercial benefit of another person or entity. Uh, so, for example, one of the privacy rights um, that's commonly accepted, it's recognized in, I believe, all 50 states, is the right against appropriation of name or likeness. And so, you know, I can't take your image, your likeness, your name, and put it on a billboard for my, to sell my product without your consent. Right. So, you know, I, I, I can't take 
Michael Jordan's face and put it on my uh, my cereal box. Uh, and now, now note that, that that right has nothing to do with secrecy. Right. It's not, you know, everyone knows who Michael Jordan is. Everyone knows what his face looks like. Um, so he's not making a claim like, I want my face and image and name to be secret. He's saying, I want control over how my identity is being used, and someone shouldn't be able to take my identity and slap it on to their own product and use it in a way that benefits them um, without my consent. Right, right. And there's certain privacy principles that, that um, you know, like there, we've learned from the Privacy Act, which is being eroded day by day, but we learned from the Privacy Act, for example, that there won't, shouldn't be any secret databases. How is it that we have all these secret databases when that's what the law says? It's, they say in the name of secrecy or security, they can have these secret databases. So how, how does that work, Dan? There's all sorts of national security exemptions and laws. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the laws that promote transparency are eroded by a lot of exceptions when it comes to national security. And unfortunately, courts are incredibly deferential to the government whenever such claims are made. Um, and so one thing I complain about in the book is that I, th- I think this, this claim is often the boy who cried wolf. And we see time and again where the government will cry national security to cover something up and exclude something, and then years later it comes out that that thing actually wound up being uh, nothing to do about national security, and in fact was just you know, some uh, government official just trying to cover something up, uh, which happens time and again and again, and courts continue to be incredibly deferential and um, you know, it, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the saying, you know, you know, fool me once, you know, shame on you, fool me twice, um, you know, shame on me. And I guess with the, the judicial system generally, it's, you know, fool me 10,000 times. <laughs> um, and, you know, that, that's, that's where we're at. And um, you know, even some of the leading cases, you know, one of the leading cases that established the state secrets doctrine, a doctrine where the government can actually go in uh, to a case. It's not even involved in, but it can go in and it can put a kibosh to the case mm-hmm. by claiming state secrets and preventing certain information that could implicate uh, national security secrets from coming out. And it can actually result in the dismissal of a case or the, the limitation of that information coming into the case. And this actually um, got uh, created in, in a case um, many, many years ago in the Supreme Court. Um, and the facts of the case involved a... Uh, a, a group of uh, uh, widows who were suing um, the military uh, for a crash that, that, that killed the, the, the servicemen. And they wanted to find out the nature of the crash, and the government said, that's protected under state secrets. We can't release it. It's an issue of national security. Yeah. Um, uh, it turns out that there was nothing um, later on, many, many years later, uh, you know, they actually found out what that information was. Guess what it showed? It showed nothing about national security. It actually showed that the government was negligent. Mm. Uh, so that's the, the, the big problem. And this right. happens again and again. So I, I, I think that um, we need a lot more skepticism when it comes to uh, claims of national security because a lot, some are justified, but a lot are spurious. And there needs to be a better way to hold government officials accountable um, so that when 
they make false claims of national security, there's, there's going to be hell to pay to some extent. Because right now, why not claim national security? It's an easy thing to do. Well, it's easy. You can claim it. And hey, you know, the only thing, if you make the claim and, and you lose, big deal. Right. And most of the time you're going to win. Exactly. So I, I think there needs to be a change in that system to really create a better uh, incentive structure uh, so that we have claims of national security only when they really, really need to be made. Well, what about some of these oversight committees that, that they have in Congress? Do, do they have any real power or are secrets kept from them as well? They can be kept from them, but I, I think Congress really um, has really fallen down on the job when it comes to uh, being an adequate check on the executive branch. And that's another unfortunate development. I mean, Congress um, historically has not been a particularly good check. Um, the executive power has incre- increasingly ratcheted up uh, throughout the years. Um, at one point, um, Congress finally um, stepped its foot down and really started uh, pushing back. And that was um, uh, during uh, Watergate and with Nixon. Um, and also, you know, shortly after that time, um, or around that time, you know, J. Edgar Hoover died. Uh, and, and so I think people in Congress were a little bit relieved because Hoover had files on everyone, and everyone right. was <laughs> deathly afraid of Hoover because he would release all their, their scandals. Right. Um, and, you know, it, it, it seems that, you know, it, it's hard to find anyone in Congress without a scandal these days. Right. Um, so the, he had all this stuff about everyone, and people were afraid. But after that, there was a big pushback. People really saw the abuses of the Nixon administration and of Hoover. Uh, the Church Committee was formed, a committee in Congress to uh, investigate um, you know, various uh, what various law uh, enforcement and spy agencies were doing, and there was an extensive report about the FBI and the CIA and various abuses in the intelligence community um, uh, produced by the Church Committee. And as a result, there was legislation, there was... Uh, 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 guidelines for um, the uh, Attorney General guidelines, FBI guidelines, uh, just an extensive amount of um, pushback. Um, and wasn't from, that in 1974? Wasn't that the... Uh, the that the, was the Privacy yeah, Act. Yeah, it was the Privacy Act. That, exactly. That, exactly. So all that was, yeah, that, that was, was all... That was in response. And, and yes. they kind of got it. But over the years, a lot of that got whittled away. Mm-hmm. And then what happened in the Bush administration was a flagrant violation of uh, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Right. Uh, this law passed in 1978 was also um, one of the responses to uh, the Church Committee report. Um, so the Bush administration flagrantly violated the uh, FISA, it's called FISA for short. Right. Um, they flagrantly violated this for the NSA surveillance program. Yeah. And basically the explanation was, well, the president is waging war, or the president has the power to do anything to wage war. Um, that is a kind of silly um, justification because technically the war on terrorism is, is more of a euphemism, and, and it's also uh, the, the, the case that um, you know, the war is without end, and it's also um, a problem because the... Uh, you know, can the president really do anything? Does that allow the president to declare himself or herself the monarch and despot of America and to murder people and do whatever? Um, so I think it really is a front to the rule of law, an attack, frontal assault on it. 
Um, and it was really problematic. And, and Congress's reaction, uh, grumbling, uh, you yeah. know, some moaning, but, but not a lot of uh, real uh, potent actions in response. Yep. Uh, in fact, they kind of, you know, kind of retroactively authorized the program. And, and, and so the message is, you know, um, uh, ignore the laws that Congress passed, uh, grab all this executive power, and Congress is basically going to sit and take it. Yeah. And that's the lesson. And that's a scary lesson. And, you know, uh, I get... they're I, not an effective check. Yeah, I get these... Um, I'm on this email listserv from Homeland Security Privacy, and and every day I seem to be getting these emails that tell me that new exclusions to the Privacy Act, and it just blew my mind. <laughs> to, to seriously, in in one week, I must have gotten five of them about various aspects of exclude new exclusions to the privacy act so oh, there's a zillion exceptions oh, to the yeah. privacy act it's, yeah. it's actually a very actually I'm not a big fan of the law because I think it it it's loaded up with tons of exceptions and so it has it, no meaning it, yeah it, it's like a piece of swiss cheese and <laughs> it, it's, it's even worse because there's some exceptions that are so big that you know you you really could pretty much get anything right. through them yeah, uh, and then it's even hard to prevail on a case under the Privacy Act. The Supreme Court has interpreted it to basically say that you have to prove actual damages, um, even though there's a liquidated damage provision in the Privacy Act. Uh, so it makes it even harder uh, to win on on a, on a case. Um, so basically, the Privacy Act, you know, is is very much a paper tiger. It it, it looks really nice, but at the end of the day, um, it doesn't do a whole lot. Right. We are speaking with Dan Selov, who is the author of Nothing to Hide, The False Trade-Off Between Privacy and Security. He's our wonderful guest. He is the John Marshall Harlan Research Professor of Law at George Washington University Law School. He's written several books. You can learn a lot more about him at danielsolov.com and KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Getting back to this book, which I love, by the way, um, you argue in there that the First Amendment should protect privacy, not just the Fourth Amendment. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Certainly. Well, um, currently under criminal procedure, the, the topic criminal procedure, um, you know, government surveillance and government searches, um, everyone looks to the Fourth Amendment as the way that, to regulate them. Uh, and the Fourth Amendment prohibits unreasonable searches and seizures, but it's been interpreted very narrowly by the Supreme Court. And so ultimately there was an attempt um, in a 1967 case, Katz versus the United States, to, to try to make a broader understanding of, of when the Fourth Amendment would regulate something. And that test was whenever there's a reasonable expectation of privacy. But now the, it sounded very broad, but, but now the Supreme Court has interpreted privacy incredibly narrowly and, and in a way that I think is often absurd. Uh, to make it incredibly difficult for the Fourth Amendment to ever apply to anything. And so in the modern age, you know, any information held by a third party, uh, no Fourth Amendment protection to it. Uh, so your ISP records, your phone records, your bank records, all this, um, credit card records, all this, um, no Fourth Amendment protection because it just happens to be held by a third party company. Um, not a particularly good doctrine for the modern world we live in, where all this information is, is in the hands of third parties. 
So basically the result is that the Fourth Amendment has a very narrow applicability, and, and I, I don't think that's a particularly good thing. So tell um, us kind of quickly about the First Amendment, because we're almost out of time. Oh, sure. Let me, so the First Amendment is, is uh, um, a, a much more robust set of protections, and, and that has typically been understood as protecting against freedom of speech, freedom of belief, freedom to uh, read and explore ideas, freedom to associate and these interests are often implicated in government searches. And so traditionally, the First Amendment has been understood as to restrict bans on speech. So if the government passes the law and stops you from speaking, the First Amendment kicks in to say, hey, you know, you can't do that. But the, the First Amendment also prohibits against the government doing things that chill your speech, that chill the exercise of rights. So even if it doesn't outright ban it, um, if the government's doing things that make it... Um, uh, that deter you from engaging in freedom of speech and association and expression and consumption of ideas, at that point, um, the First Amendment rights are also implicated. And one thing I argue in the book is that government searches and surveillance are doing this. They are, in fact, chilling speech. Uh, and the First Amendment is implicated by what the government's doing. And the First Amendment should provide protection. Uh, and the First Amendment protections are a lot more potent than 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 uh, and the First Amendment much much broader in, in in what it can protect than the way the Fourth Amendment is is currently protecting. I love it. I love it, Dan. You are so wonderful. We have to have you back very soon to talk about teach privacy, so we can teach kids from when they're just little all the way up through college and law school. You are wonderful, and we will have people definitely check out Nothing to Hide, the False Trade-Off Between Privacy and Security, and we will have you back again. Thanks so much, Dan. You are the best. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, talk to you soon. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and learn more about privacy and how to protect yourself in the information age. So go to KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. And thank you so much. See you next week. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.